0: Many churches relate the word worship to singing, but that's only one small aspect of the 24-7 lifestyle worship is meant to be. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah explains why a lifestyle of worship is a taste of what worship will be like in heaven, where you can offer your praises without restraint or distraction. From Signs, here's David to introduce today's message, Worship in Heaven. Well, folks, you know, there's a lot of worship
1: music out there today, and some Christians see worship as optional. But John looked through a doorway into heaven, and he saw that worship was a central activity. And the Christian's life should be a dress rehearsal for what eternity of worship will be like in heaven. Um, I'm going to put in my my vote for choirs. You know, I live in a culture where in churches, most churches have, uh, well, they they have choir maybe once a month or maybe at Christmas time. and Here I am in a church where we have this massive choir that sings every week with a full orchestra. And I want to tell you something. I believe with all my heart that what we do is as close to what's going to happen in heaven as you can get on this earth. And there are some days when I almost feel like I can hear uh, the choirs of heaven when our people are worshiping the Lord. It's not the only way to worship the Lord, and I'm not putting down anybody else's uh, methodology. But for as long as I can remember, this has been the way we have worshiped. I remember a situation when I was a student at Dallas Seminary. I used to go to the First Baptist Church where W. A. Criswell was the pastor. They had a marvelous worship leader at that time. And I remember going to church one Sunday when their choir and orchestra, which is way before the time when most churches were doing this, sang a, a portion of the Messiah. And I sat in my chair transfixed, and I, I remember telling my wife, Maybe someday I'll be in a church where we can have that kind of majestic music. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a song that our choir did that just lifted us right out of our seats because it was such a massive worship setting, and what a wonderful way to lift our voices to Christ. So if you happen to be in a situation like that, be thankful for it. If you're not, enjoy what you have, but let me um, let me be a champion for choirs. I love choirs. And uh um, We're going to talk about a choir right now as we open our Bible to the fourth chapter of
2: Revelation. The Bible says we're going to spend eternity in praise and worship. And if that is true, then praise and worship has to be a high priority with the Lord. It should challenge us as His people to take seriously the biblical instruction that we have been given and to continue to grow in our ability to worship and praise God. What we are learning to do In our short time on this earth, we will spend an eternity doing in heaven. So as our Bibles are open to Revelation chapter 4, I'd like to give you just a little bird's eye view, if I might, of what it's going to be like to praise God in heaven. Roman numeral 1 in our notes is the context of worship in heaven, and I want you just to read the first part of the first verse of Revelation 4. John is writing, and he said, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven." a door opened in heaven. John is able to look from his place on earth through an open door into heaven. He is able to see something that no one has ever seen before. From his place on the Isle of Patmos, John sees the worship that is taking place in heaven. And that scene, John in exile viewing heaven in worship, provides the context for this whole passage we're going to discuss today. And there is no better example in all of the history of Christianity, no better example of an eternal perspective than that which John the Apostle had, especially in the years following Christ's ascension to heaven. As you know, John, along with Peter and James, was part of the inner circle of the Lord's disciples. John was with Jesus at all the critical moments in the life of Jesus, such as in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember in Matthew 26, we're told that he took Peter with him and the two sons of Zebedee. And John was one of those who came and he was there with Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He was with Jesus at the time of his crucifixion. The only disciple who was still left standing at the cross was John. And you read about that in John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. And it was John who outran Peter on the way to the empty tomb on resurrection morning. Peter therefore went out And the other disciple, and were going to the tomb, and so they both ran together, and the other disciple, this is written by John, he calls himself the other disciple, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. John was present when Peter and James, together with John, went to the Mount of Transfiguration, and there they saw the glorified Lord. And John was present when Jesus ascended into heaven, John had been privileged to be with the Lord in many of the most important moments of our Lord's life on this earth. But John also experienced many difficult challenges in his life. Hold your place in Revelation 4 and go back to the first chapter of Revelation. And notice what it says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. Listen to these words as John introduces this book. He says, I, John... Both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here is John on this isolated island. He's in exile. Things couldn't have been worse for him. He'd had some great moments, but this surely wasn't one of them. Probably lived much of his time without knowing what was going on with his fellow disciples and apostles. Jesus had warned all of the apostles that one day they would drink the cup that he drank and he was talking then about his death john must have wondered what was going on even though he was the recipient of a great vision from the lord here is john on this island exiled from all of his friends alone he's old too and this is what the scripture says in the midst of his exile one day john's lonely existence was interrupted by the opening of a door into heaven the context of worship in heaven. Notice, secondly, as we look at this passage, the center of worship in heaven. Verses 2 and 3 we read, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now the key word in this verse is the word throne. In fact, if you go through the book of Revelation, you'll find the word throne appears 46 times in that book. It's interesting because it's 14 times just in the fourth chapter. The word throne in this context speaks of sovereignty. It speaks of authority. It speaks of reign. It speaks of control. And when you read in Revelation about the throne of God, it is a reminder that while the events on this earth seem to be chaotic and without any meaning whatsoever and totally out of control, there is one in the universe who is seated on the throne. He is sovereign and he is in control, hallelujah. We are not left without any direction. Almighty God is seated upon the throne in heaven. May appear that no one is in control. Maybe you feel that way in your life. Maybe you feel your life is out of control. I want you to know there is one who is in control, and that's Almighty God. And as John sees that throne, he tries to describe what he sees. He has a very difficult job because the primary focus of the throne is God himself. And the Bible says no man has ever seen God and lived. So John could only see the appearance of God, and he symbolically tries to describe the image that he sees as he looks through the door in heaven. And he says in verse 3 that he saw that which looked like a jasper and a sardius stone and a rainbow around the throne. Now the jasper is what we call a diamond, a beautiful many-faceted stone that sparkled and glittered in the light. And John said that as he looked upon that throne, all he could see was the brilliance of a diamond. And the diamond was accompanied by a sardius or a carnelian stone, which is the same as our ruby. And around the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. And as he gazed at the majesty and beauty of his eternal creator, all he could comprehend was that it was like a brilliant diamond and a ruby and an emerald. It was so magnificent it took his breath away. My friend, if the door to heaven were to open today and you and I could look through that door and see the throne in heaven, we would be as hard-pressed to describe it as John was, but it would be something like what he has described. The brilliance and beauty and glory of that place and the reminder to us, that God is not on vacation. He hasn't taken a sabbatical. God is on the throne. He is seated in his majesty there in heaven. The context of worship and the center of worship, and now notice the chorus of worship. What John is about to realize and what he's about to see is the worship service going on in heaven. And I want you to read with me verse four and then verses nine through 11. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." john was allowed to see heavenly worship he wrote about the magnificence of that occasion he gives us a glimpse of what it will be like someday to be a part of that great worship experience when forever we bring honor and glory to our god john noticed that there were 24 seats around the throne occupied by 24 elders these are identified as the representatives of the church of the living god Revelation 5, verses 8 through 10 says this, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Oh, I wish we could hear what John apparently heard. I wish we could see what John tries to describe to us that he saw. It is massive, overwhelming, magnificent, glorious praise of the God in heaven. William Temple has defined praise like this. He says, worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination with the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God and to devote the will to the purpose of God. This describes the worship in heaven and it should be the goal of every worshiper on earth. One day we will be a part of that gathering Before the throne, which, as you remember, is at the center of heaven. It is the very center of the place we call heaven. And we'll be gathered around that throne to bring honor and glory to the Lord. I want to talk with you just a moment about one of the interesting observations I've made in studying these passages on worship in Revelation. And that is the crescendo of worship in heaven. Crescendo means to get louder and louder, to get bigger and bigger, to make more and more out of what started as small Uh, crescendo is to finish big. (laughs) And it's interesting that in the worship songs in the book of Revelation, there is an obvious crescendo. There is a growing crescendo of praise in the book of Revelation. First of all, in verse 6 of chapter 1, there is a twofold doxology. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. A twofold doxology. When you come to chapter 4, verse 11, there's a threefold doxology. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. When you come to chapter 5, in verse 13, there's a fourfold doxology. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne. And when you come to the 7th chapter and the 12th verse, there is a sevenfold doxology. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You feel the movement of worship through the book of Revelation. It starts out twofold and it ends up sevenfold and there's this gigantic crescendo of worship to the Lord. And then I want you to note the contrast of worship. Number five. The great Christian apologist C.S. Lewis wrote an allegory called The Great Divorce. In this allegory, there's a man who rides a bus to paradise, and he finds it more fully and powerfully real than anything he could ever have imagined. Everything is alive, bursting with color, and expressed in complete reality. But hell, he discovers, is nothing more than a fleck of dust in comparison. It is concerned only with tiny things. In the same way Lewis suggests, our lives in this world become smaller and smaller, in light of the grandness of eternity. As John looks at heaven through this open door, everything that he sees is grand in scale, gigantic in proportion. First we wonder at it all, and then we worship, and suddenly everything in this world becomes small and insignificant in comparison. Getting a glimpse of heaven is like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, or at the top of the Rocky Mountains and being speechless at the sight. We suddenly see that God is much bigger than we had thought and wants bigger and better things for us than this world can ever offer. John was allowed to experience two realities in one moment. Isolated on Patmos, separated from friends and worried about the persecution of the church by the Roman Emperor Domitian. John was facing discouragement. Yet in a moment of time, he is ushered out of that reality through the open door into heaven. And he sees the Lord seated on the throne and the picture of sovereign control. And he sees the elders bowing down and worshiping. And he sees the beauty and majesty of heaven. And God gave this experience to John to encourage his heart. Worship took him from the loneliness of his discouraged heart right into the control room of the universe to see God's purpose and plan for everything that would happen in the future. You and I are constantly bombarded with the reality of this world. Television and radio and newspapers are incessantly getting us to focus on this world and on our present reality and all of its problems. Yet this reality is in contrast to the unseen reality of heaven. Christians often live as though eternal things are somehow less real. According to the scripture, they are not less real, they are more real. That which we know here on earth is temporal. The eternal God sits in judgment on that which is temporal. When John was ushered into the presence of God, everything that was going on in his life was immediately brought next to the eternal reality of God. This is one byproduct of worship that should motivate us all the more. When I see God high and lifted up, my little stuff doesn't seem anything to him. God is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. Nothing is impossible to Him. It is through worship that my spirit is lifted up into the heavenlies. It is through worship that I am made to see God as John saw Him. And it is through worship then that my life starts to have a perspective about it, an evenness to it that keeps me from the ups and downs and the roller coaster that so used to dominate my life before I discovered what it was like to really worship Almighty God. Jesus is telling John in that moment of reality, John, I want you to know that things are not as they appear to be. I'm going to show you how things really are. I'm going to walk you into the throne room of heaven and show you genuine reality. Things are not out of control. Satan has not won. Evil has not triumphed. Peek through the door, get a glimpse of reality. God is on his throne, and such a sight will transform your heart and your mind forever. So what can I learn from the scene in heaven? How do I apply it to my own life? Let me just give you four things real quickly. First of all, worship is not about us. It's about him. Let me have you say that with me out loud. We really need to make this come down to our heart and get it. Worship is not about us. It's about him. Now, let me ask you this question. What should you be thinking when something happens in a worship service that just really isn't your preference? You should be thinking worship is not about us. It's about him. If we focus on the object of our worship, we won't be so contrary about the substance of our worship and the style of our worship. One of the reasons why we get all bent out of shape and we have worship wars in our church is because we forget that worship is not about us, it's about Him. Number two, worship is not about here, it's about there. One of the main purposes of worship is to get our minds off the things of this earth and onto the things in heaven. And only as we're able to do that can we ever hope to function with integrity in our life. Get a glimpse of heaven and earth will come into proportion with you. That's why we read in Colossians 3, 1 to 3, that we're to set our mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Worship's not about us, it's about him. It's not about here, it's about there. It's not about now, it's about then. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man's being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, I want you to notice what Paul's doing here. And if I could, I'd just take the whole time and teach this one passage. Paul challenges the Corinthian believers to leverage everything that was going on in their lives against the promise of the future. And I want you to notice how carefully he contrasts everything in this passage. The outward man is perishing. The inward man is being renewed. The light affliction is for today. The weight of eternal glory is for tomorrow. The things which are seen are leveraged against the things which are not seen. Affliction for a moment is leveraged against glory for eternity. Things which are temporary are leveraged against things which are eternal. It could not be clearer. Worship is the corridor through which we make the exchange of heaven it is the avenue that leads us from the emptiness of this world to the fullness of the next world it is the street that leads from decay and discouragement to renewal and glory and when we fail to worship we confine ourselves to the despair of this life that's why to worship is not just oh well. some people worship and some people don't worship is the very core of your existence you were created to worship and when you don't worship you are failing to express the purpose for your being here worship is not about us it's about him it's not about here it's about there it's not about now it's about then and it's not about one it's about many in an age when some are saying that corporate worship is really not necessary i hear him say it all the time oh we don't need to come to worship we can worship in our own home i can worship on the golf course Look at all the beautiful trees. Yeah, and you miss one shot, and I bet you're not worshiping. <laughs> all the time, people are saying, you know, we don't need to come. And there's this kind of thing now, you know, independent Christianity. I don't need the church. Listen to me. You need the church, you need each other. And it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, for every time there is any independent worship where John falls down and worships, there are five or six or seven occasions. When massive worship is presented. There is no such thing as individual Christianity. I've told you many times the word saints is always in the plural in the Bible. So here's another strong vote for worshiping with your brothers and sisters in your own local church. In Revelation, you cannot escape the massive gatherings that will populate heaven's worship experiences. And I want to end my message with just reminding you of some of these. Revelation 5, 11, and 12. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. You talk about a choir. And thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Listen to this description of heavenly worship from Revelation chapter 14. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps, they sang as it were a new song before the throne. Revelation nineteen six, and I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. You see that picture? <laughs> If choirs and orchestras can elevate us to such heights of enjoyment here on this earth, what will it be like when we hear the celestial choirs accompanied by heaven-trained orchestras lifting praise to Almighty God around the throne? And I hope to be a part of that in heaven. Having said all of that, if that's where we're headed, we need to start rehearsals immediately. Amen? We need to start rehearsals immediately. There's no guarantee how long we've got to get ready. It could be tomorrow. So we need to start now. We need to sing praise to the Lord and learn how to worship Him because one day we're going to be involved in this gigantic worship experience when we praise the Lord together.
1: Amen. You can tell the excitement that I have for worship didn't start yesterday because this message was given some time ago, and I'm still as excited as I was, perhaps even more so. In fact, you know, uh, not being able to have corporate worship during COVID just gave me a greater hunger for it than ever before. I hope you feel the same way. I remember one time during COVID-19, we put a choir together uh, with virtual singers. We had like over a 100 singers, and we, we recorded them all separately, and then our guys put them together. We called it a virtual choir. But virtual choirs don't even come close to real choirs. And uh, I guess you know I'm excited about that. Hey, we'll see you tomorrow, and we're going to talk about Easter tomorrow, The Seven Signs of Easter. Don't miss it. We'll see you then.
0: For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Signs, 31 Undeniable Prophecies of the Apocalypse, visit our website, where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of Bible Prophecy by the Numbers. David's new resource that relates the numbers in scripture to God's prophetic plan. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah study Bible in the English standard, new international and new King James versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow for the special message, The Seven Signs of Easter, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah.
1: There seems to be a trend today to take the sting out of loss in children's sports programs by awarding trophies just for showing up. But in the adult world, a loss can be hurtful and disappointing. When we lose or fail in life, there is usually pain involved that we must learn to accept. The Apostle Paul had a unique perspective on loss. He rejoiced in it. He willingly embraced it. He said, I am happy to lose everything the world values for the privilege of knowing Christ. God always has something good buried in our losses and failures if we will look for it. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's lessons in loss on Route
2: 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life.